Just enough water, just enough wine, just enough crumbs, a dollar and a dime, just enough hope to keep us towing the line. But sooner or later, Well, that marvelous song is Sooner or Later by Eliza Gilkinson. We use it as the introduction to Activist Radio. We offer some history you didn't learn in school. We have a couple stories that you haven't seen in the New York Times. And we have a few musical selections that help you get in the mood for the resistance. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays, 8 to 9 a.m. on KBOO. They're at 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. Thursdays 11 to 12 noon on WRFA 107.9 FM in Jamestown, New York. Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Thursdays 7 to 8 p.m. on WBDY, that's 99.5 FM at the Bundy in Binghamton, New York. Sundays 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. on WESU, and they're at 88.1 FM at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. from WIOF, they're at 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. You can find them at prn.live. And finally, Mondays 11 to 12 noon on WCAA, and they're at 107.3 FM in Albany, New York. Past programs are available as a podcast. Just search on Activist Radio. Or you can listen to our last 10 programs uh, at any time. Just go to classwars.org, our website. Our guest today is Unusual Shahad. She's a young Palestinian activist. She's a political writer living with her family in Gaza. Uh, I interviewed her last year. she is now missing uh, perhaps one of the tens of thousands of people murdered by the Israeli state. So this is an interview of uh, about a year ago about her life in Gaza before the invasion and the catastrophe that has uh, befallen uh, two million people in Gaza. Uh, this brings us to the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, it's not its board of directors, nor its constituents, just the views of me, Fred, and I'm bringing you up to date on America's hidden class wars. People's Day, Otis Gibbs. It's your introduction to the very first part of Activist Radio. 
we take a little peek at history, you probably didn't learn much about in high school. Uh, it is a part of activist radio. We try to remember social struggle. It's also often left out of our corporate media, especially the victories of social struggle. The, the people on the street, the people demanding a change to their our country, uh, demanding an end to the American Empire and its military aggression around the rest of the world. Alright, we go back in history to February 1st, 1960. Four black college students sat down at a Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Being black, they were quickly refused service, but they remained sitting at the lunch counter until the store closed so that everyone could see their protests against black racism. The four students were Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, William Smith, and Clarence Henderson. Joseph McNeil later told a reporter that he'd been so anxious before sitting down at a whites-only counter. But once there, he explained, quote, I had the most wonderful feeling. I had a feeling of liberation, restored manhood. I had a natural high. I truly felt almost invincible. Mind you, I was just sitting on a dumb stool and not having asked for service yet." Unquote. Well, at that same lunch counter, there was a little old white lady. She was finishing her soup. Um, after she finished, she came over to the four protesters. She put her hands on two of their shoulders. Boy, she said, I'm so proud of you. I only regret that you didn't do this ten years ago. Unquote. Well, the very next day, the four came back, only this time with 15 more black students. The third day saw 63 students, and on the fourth day, they were also joined by three white female students from the University of North Carolina. And the day after that, over 300 students demanded to be served at Woolworth's lunch counter. The company soon negotiated, but was really unwilling to give blacks their equal rights. More sit-ins followed. The city adopted even more stringent segregation policies, and 45 students were arrested. Soon the students launched a boycott of all stores in Greensboro who had segregated lunch counters. And six months after the very first sit-in, the four black freshmen returned and were served peacefully at the same Woolworth counter. Even more exciting, the lunch counter protests spread quickly all over the South and in many northern communities. By September the following year, 70,000 students, both white and black, had participated with many arrested when they refused to leave the lunch counters. How quickly these lunch counter protests expanded and how multiracial the participation really was. It was just the right time and a huge number of young people suddenly organized against Jim Crow segregation. The lunch counter protests were only a part of the push to organize whites and blacks into a national movement for human rights. 
At Shaw University in Raleigh, students formed their own organization, the famous Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. That organization formed the core of student protests throughout the civil rights era. Well, students are in the street again, organizing and marching for Palestinian rights. It's been a long time coming, over 75 years since the mass ethnic cleansing of 1948. That was called the Nakba. This time they're marching to end the Israeli genocide of over two million people. Defenseless and starving, the people of Gaza flee the bombing, but there's no place to go. 12,000 children have already been slaughtered. Large majority of the American people want a ceasefire, but our ruling class from both parties want the carnage to continue. Our president is pro-Israel even after the International Court of Justice has confirmed that a genocide is taking place. Is it because Biden has raked in more Israeli lobby money than any other politician in Washington, a career a uh, bribe, essentially, of $4.5 million. Or is it that the whole system is built on the desires of the filthy rich, whose goals it is to possess the entire oil-rich Middle East? Even our local politicians like Pat Ryan won't talk about the civilian deaths in Gaza. He just doesn't have the guts to go against his paymasters. We are in a new anti-war, an anti-racist peace movement. Hundreds of thousands of people are taking to the streets. Maybe we have the perfect issue once again to challenge the racism and militarism of our troubled empire. We're going to go to a song by Nancy Griffith and Lucinda Williams. The album is Dust Bowl Symphony and the song is It's a Hard Life. I am a backseat driver from America They drive to the left on Falls Road And a man at the wheels named Seamus They pass a child on the corner he knows And Seamus says, no, what chance has that kid got? And I say from the back, I don't know He says there's barbed wire at all of these exits And there ain't no place in Belfast for that kid to go Children 
treasure I see And I'm thinking this man wears a white hood In the night when his children should sleep But they'll slip to their windows and they'll see him And they'll think that white hood's all they need by Jay Mankita to lead into the next part of Activist Radio has its own website fantasylandmedia.org here's where we take a look at what we think uh, are the failings of our corporate controlled media failings because all the news is really made by the people in charge the people that run the corporations as well as your very own government Our first story today comes from The Guardian in England. Quote, The Gaza Strip is facing an inevitable famine because of the decision by Western countries to pause funding for the UN Agency for Palestinian Affairs after Israeli accusations that 12 of the group's employees took part in the Hamas attack on 7 October. Michelle Fakari, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, said on Sunday, Famine was imminent, and now it is inevitable. 
in a comment following the news that the U.S. and nine other countries were suspending additional funding to the U.N. Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. This collectively punishes over 2.2 million Palestinians, she said. Israel's not publicly shared the details of its allegations against UNRWA uh, and the employees, which, according to the Axos website, were provided by the Israeli Defense Forces and its internal security service, Shin Bet. Well, Israel and the U.S. seems more than willing to starve hundreds of thousands with no proof yet that the U.N. agency was involved in the Hamas attack. The racism is staggering. Maybe that's why this story got so very little coverage in the U.S. All right, the next story is from The Hill. The Council on American Islamic Relations on Sunday condemned Representative Nancy Pelosi for linking pro-Palestinian protesters to Russia during a CNN interview in which she indicated that she wants the FBI to investigate any potential financial links. Pelosi suggested on CNN's State of the Union that some of the pro-Palestinian protesters who are calling for a ceasefire in Gaza are spreading a message that is beneficial to Russian President Vladimir Putin. When co-anchor Donna Bush asked Pelosi whether she thought some of the protesters were, quote, Russian plants. Pelosi responded, I don't think they're plants. I think some financing should be investigated, and I want to ask the FBI to investigate that. Well, this story got plenty of coverage in the U.S. media. Very few stories, however, condemned this baseless charge or even referred to the huge bribes that Pelosi has taken from the Israel lobby for her pro-Israeli stances. She's received over $600,000, according to Open Secrets, from the Israel lobby in her career. The next story, and the final story, is going to be uh, from The Intercept. In a momentous day for the quest to keep Israel and its allies accountable for its brutal war on Gaza, members of the leading Palestinian human rights groups, residents of Gaza, and Palestinian Americans argued in U.S. District Court on Friday that the Biden administration should halt its financial and military support for Israel and uphold its obligations to prevent genocide. The arguments came in a lawsuit that the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, filed in November against President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, charging them with complicity and failure to prevent the unfolding genocide, and that's in parentheses, in the occupied strip. Testifying either in person or in Oakland, California, courthouse or remotely from Palestine, the plaintiffs spoke for nearly three hours about the deliberate devastation wrought by Israel in the aftermath of October 7th Hamas's attack. The hearing commenced hours after the International Court of Justice in The Hague found that it's plausible that Israel has committed acts of genocide in Gaza in a case brought by South Africa. 
While the United Nations Court fell short of ordering an immediate ceasefire, a panel of judges delivered a historic ruling, denied Israel's request to dismiss the case. A final resolution in that case is expected to take years. Well, I wonder if it takes years, will there be anybody left in Gaza um, out of that two million people? It's wonderful that the court has acknowledged uh, the grievance. The grievance is genocide, and of course, uh, Israel is committing it. But there doesn't really seem to me any outlet for the starving people of Gaza and the starving children of Gaza. And this whole thing was not a popular story in the U.S. media the day of charging Biden and, and Blinken uh, with war crimes and genocide. And I think that maybe is because the U.S. has begun to fear being involved in this horrendous genocide in Gaza. It's too close. The U.S. is too close. The rest of the world, I think, is watching. And therefore, stories like that are, are not really going to make it into our media. And our empire couldn't be much more involved. We send weapons, we send money, we protect Israel at the UN. We're in a position to see the worst holocaust of our century. Looking in the mirror, you may see the mark of Cain. We're going to go to a song now. This is uh, Nancy Griffith, Lucinda Williams, and the song is Wings of a Dove. Let's go to that. On the wings of a snow-white dove He sends his pure, sweet love A sign from above On the wings of a dove When trouble surrounds us When the evils come The body grows weak when these things be said us, he doesn't forget us. He sits down his love on the wings of a dove, on the wings of a snow-white dove. He sends his pure, sweet love. Snow White Dove He sends his pure sweet 
All right, that was Nancy Griffith, Lucinda Williams, The Wings of a Dove. Well, we have our guest coming up now, uh, Shahad, young Palestinian activist, political writer, uh, living with her family in Gaza. Uh, now, this is the last time I talked to her, and she talked a lot about her life and the, the worries she had about her family. And uh, the worries maybe have uh, proven to be true. I can't uh, contact her anymore. I mean, I don't think you can probably contact many people in Gaza. Everything is destroyed. It's uh, a moonscape. So I don't know whether she's missing. Uh, I don't know whether she's been declared dead. And maybe at the end of all this, uh, she'll have proved to be a survivor. Uh, but I thought, um, really, in honor of Shahad and, and all the Palestinian young people have, that have been murdered by Israel in this uh, proven to be a genocide, that her voice should be heard. And therefore, we're going to go to that interview. It's, it's more of Israeli aggression on Palestinians, to be honest, mm. uh, because there is no at all any kind of symmetry between the power of Israel and the power of Palestine, yeah. you know? So... That's the secret that, that we... That's the secret that our media doesn't tell us. It always says, you know, it's a war between two peoples, but it never does talk about symmetry. And uh, Yes. Do you feel it's that... A, Yourself, as a person living in Gaza, do you feel uh, always worried about an attack coming and uh, having no place to run or, or no place, no way to fight back? Yes, sure. Uh, actually, everyone in the Gaza Strip is afraid about that, and no one is 100% that, uh, that uh, they'd be uh, safe all the time. In fact, we are all sure that we wouldn't be safe. And we already know that um, yani we are resisting and we are um, trying our best so that we go push through life. But even in times when there is no aggression in the Gaza Strip, uh, there is, um, I, I, I would say there is like some kind of other pain that is systematically created by Israel. And that manifests itself in the lockdown that the Israeli uh, government imposed on Gazans in 2007. And they also like don't allow us to travel except in two conditions, which are like um, illness or, or education purposes. And even if you meet uh, these uh, conditions, you wouldn't be allowed, um, in most, most times you wouldn't be allowed to travel. Mm. Um, but like they agree sometimes, but not not in most cases. I mean, I meet many people, many people, and sometimes in in severe cases uh, who couldn't travel uh, abroad or out of Gaza, and even couldn't travel into Israel so that they get better treatment because the treatment here in the medis medical department in the Gaza Strip is very very bad, and it's not our fault because like our our land is occupied uh, by Israel and thus we don't have there is shortage because of the lockdown we don't have uh, a lot of medical equipment uh, that and tools that we should have 
and we don't have enough electricity and uh, there is a lot of um i would say that we lack a lot we lack in a lot of things so that like uh, absolutely the situation here would be miserable so we like we uh we need uh to to ask them to let us to allow us to to get into their uh, hospitals and to treat our patients why do you think that israel often attacks uh what we call uh structures uh for example electricity structures uh water purification um when uh, israel attacks they also they also seem to uh, attack your ability as a people you know to to farm for example why is israel uh, targeting areas like this well um i actually don't have a clear uh like image of what they are intending to do but i think that they're trying their best not to let us improve in whatever aspect so that they hit what they think would help us in in even in in um i would say even in the minor or let's say in um, in some way that would help us depend uh, on ourselves rather than on them they want us to totally be depending on on them you know because they want to occupy us and in fact they <laughs> It's true that they don't occupy Gaza as a land, but they occupy occupy us in all other areas of life. Mm -hmm. You know, can you everything. Tell, can you tell us, for example, um, you really the fishing boats really can't go out uh, very far without being, you know, taken over by the uh, Israeli uh, Navy. Uh, you can't fly out. Uh, you can't yes. you can't walk out because of the um, the borders are all, all closed up. So uh, how is this different from a huge prison? Oh yeah, okay. See, let me talk a little bit, uh, or let me try to draw an image of what it means like to be somewhat a Palestinian in the Gaza Strip. I would share my story. See, I'm a university student and I am 21 years old. I've never left Gaza. And Gaza is like a city. It's very, very small area. That's mm -hmm. that's the first thing. It's very small area, and um, and I lived in many neighborhoods. Actually, in all the neighborhoods of the Gaza Strip. So uh, I lived in Rafah. I lived in Rafah is in the southern area. Now I live in Rafah, which is in the southern area of the Gaza Strip. Also, there is the middle, and there is the uh, northern area, and I lived in both. And actually. Even though I lived in three places or in three neighborhoods, everything is is really really the same because it's under lockdown. So wherever you go, you feel you'd feel like you're you're just in the same place because it's a city. It's one city, you know. Mm -hmm. Um. So, I, uh, I mean, like once I was talking to my uncle who had the opportunity to travel to Tunisia. And he said that the first thing he noticed about his travel is that he keeps seeing new faces and new places. Everything is new. Like whatever he goes is new. And for, for me, it was like weird because in, in Gaza, there is nothing that is new. Wherever you go, everything is familiar. If everything is the same, the people you meet are the same. You know, there is no that kind of diversity because it's it's a prison. Yeah, we say it's a prison. And in fact, it is. It's like the 
widest open prison in the world. Mm. So yeah, um, my life is pretty much, um, even the incidents of my life daily are actually the same. I mean, and it's the story of like of the majority of us. Like we, we go to school, we grow up, then we go to university, then we're done with, with the university. And that's when um, like uh, the pain of youth really, 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 really manifests. So like, and in, and in what way? It's in the way that you start to look um, for jobs. And, and there are very few job opportunities in the Gaza Strip, very, very few because of the situation. And mostly these opportunities go to the powerful people, the power, powerful, dominant people in, in Gaza. Uh, but uh, if you can hear me, um, maybe you'll have to. Not in Gaza, <laughs> not in Gaza, uh -huh. but it was online, like as a freelancer, which really I thank God for, you know. Yeah, I, uh, I missed the last two, set, two minutes because uh, it cut out. Um, oh, sorry. No. What was the last thing I said that you remember? <laughs> uh, you said it was very hard to live in Gaza because um, there were no jobs and the jobs, whatever jobs there are, go to people, you know, in power. And so it's very hard to be a person your age to grow up because you don't really have very much to look forward to. Yes, but uh, yeah, but only if you could uh, push it through and could be lucky enough to find jobs, mm. if they are strongly passionate, if they are uh, very hardworking, and mm. sometimes in a crazy way, like they have to to turn into workaholics so that they get that job, and it would it would be like it would be decent and it would be a good job, but um, they will face a lot of troubles even if they had that job because. There is always that guilt that you'd be feeling if no. you got a job that oh my god okay I I I I could manage to have a dignified life but oh, to yeah. have like a good life but what about the others you know that that guilt that I I I know that guilt I mean that guilt is is very uh, is what people go through when uh, they go to war. Uh, and yeah. somebody else gets shot and you didn't, you know, that, that, that's a guilt that's very hard to deal with. Yes, even in, in aggressions, you reminded me of that. Like, it gets really intense when, when, uh, when we are in the, in, like, during aggressions times. And by aggressions, I mean when things get really very, very escalated, like escalating here. Yeah. And just the situation gets very intense and very powerful, very, like, very traumatizing um you you'd be feeling very strong guilt that oh my god people are dying and there is nothing I, i'm able to do yeah. and i always feel that actually even in times of migration like um there's nothing i can do to change anything to change a fate of someone for example i know that suffering much more than i do and i know many lost family members and uh things like that I'm also interested in just the basics of life. Uh, not everybody gets uh, potable water, do they? I mean, since the uh, purification, water purification really doesn't work all the time, um, how are you sure that you're, f for example, drinking, uh, not drinking water that's contaminated? 
Well, see, we know that the water we drink is unhealthy. <laughs> We're sure about that. And that's why I think the there are many, 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 many uh, medical problems here in the Gaza Strip. We have a lot of uh, hospitals that is full of sick people. Mm. And uh, we we all know that. Like, I, There is healthy water, but you have to buy it. Um, oh. But oh. people are not. Yani, they are not very familiar with buying healthy water. So, so they just uh, drink the water that uh, they have in their houses, which mm. is unhealthy, yeah. you know. That's um, now I go from the uh, small issues to the larger issues. Um, wh- why would uh, Jews living in Israel want to put two million people, pal- uh, Palestinian people, uh, through such suffering uh, and and such killing, what do you think? Do they want to just drive you away? And and do, do you think that they want to move into the uh, Gaza Strip and and call it part of Israel? Why are they, why are they doing this uh, massive? Uh, well, we could it gets close to what we call genocide, um, yeah. destruction of a people and its culture. Um, yeah. Why why do you think? Israel is doing this to you. Okay, actually, you've asked me a question that has always been on my mind. We all ask ourselves that question, like, why why are they doing that to us? But see, uh, the Gaza Strip is, first of all, a part of Palestine, you know? Mm-hmm. Many people think that Gaza is just a country. It's not a country, and there is no symmetry. It's just uh, between Israel and Gaza, actually. Gaza is only one city of uh, a, like of a big country, not really a big country. Like in area, it's a small as well. The country itself. And um, Israel in 1948 colonized and occupied that that area. You know, which is called Palestine. Right. Then yeah, and it is it dismissed its people. I mean, my parents aren't actually Gazan. They don't belong to Gaza. Uh, my grandparents belonged to Qastina, which is um, uh, a village in Palestine that was occupied in 1948 by Israel. And then we were dismissed or they were dismissed into Gaza. And then, uh, you know, generation, my father's generation, then me, I'm the third generation after Nakba of Palestinians. Then I came and I heard the story from both my my father and also my grandmother because my grandfather died years years before i was born mm-hmm. and the story is very sad like when they you know were dismissed out of uh, their village and it's um and then they came here and uh, uh the situation even before the lockdown wasn't good israel was here but then in uh, i think to 2005 or six, they just went out of Gaza and imposed the lockdown. I'm not sure about the date, but it's very, very close. Mm. So um, I think um, what they are doing right now, um, or the like, their intention would be that um, they want us to. I I I don't know. I I I find it hard. To know what's behind what they are doing, to be honest. Um, but what I'm sure of is that it's very inhumane, it's very insane, and there is nothing that uh, justifies what they are doing to me in person as Shahid. Mm. Like uh, I, I've I've never done anything uh, like 
bad so that I'd be suffering this way, right. the way I am suffering. Mm -hmm. And also when I'm talking about me, I'm not only talking about me, actually. I'm talking about many people. Actually, the majority of Gazans are very, very good-hearted, kind-hearted people and also civilians. There are very few who, who fight uh, against Israel. And by the way, their fight is self-defense. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you think out of their angle, your, your view about what's happening here in Palestine or in the occupied territories, it will be different. Because for them, they, they are defending um, their rights, they are defending uh, like uh, against um, like against a, a country that created itself and um, and just set itself on their land, you sure. know? Yeah. So that's, that's their image, which is mine as well. I think that they they stole our land and that would happen like uh, in 1948 many palestinian palestinians were dismissed out of uh, their uh, villages many like many thousands of palestinians and right now they are all over the world like we are like you know scattered all over the world in the west bank in the gaza strip there is a 20 percentage of israelis are actually palestinians mm. and um, and all around the world and also those 20 percent uh uh, person, they they suffer quite much, and they are treated as like a second or not second. I uh like third class in Israel, mm. and they are and they face very very racist uh, like um, government, and they don't recognize them as uh, Palestinians. They say they they are Arabs of Israel. Yeah, but they they themselves refuse that. What do you, who do you think has it worse? Uh, Gaza, the West Bank, uh, Israel is continually bulldozing Palestinian homes, uh, building fences around villages, and uh, more recently, just out and out shooting uh, young Palestinian, mostly uh, young men, Palestinian men, uh, hiring sharpshooters to actually just murder people in the street. Um, and then you have 20% uh, of Israel actually are Palestinians themselves and live, as you say, in Israel, but are face what we would call in the U.S. Uh, a Jim Crow existence, where if you're Jewish, you have all the rights. If you're Palestinians, you have none. That's like the way we treat black people, uh, have treated black people in our country. Um, so each group is suffering uh, who who do you think uh, has it worse and would you would be would you be happier living in the west bank see i'm against comparing the pain because it's a still pain mm. i i've never experienced the pain of uh, people in the west bank because i've never lived there sure. but i'm sure that they are suffering i'm sure because some of them like i i met uh not in person but like online a few uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, and they told me very sad things about what they are suffering and confronting. And they also showed uh, compassion toward uh, what we are suffering. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes. So I, I'm sure if I were in their shoes, I would understand what they are confronting. And they, if they were in, my, in ours, they would understand what we are suffering. Like, yeah. for example, they say, um, 
that oh my god gazans and the aggression they just they they can't uh be sure about their lives and imagine that uh, just a pump would fall over your house out of nothing and just out of sudden and and you might really you might be killed after that sure. and they think that this is you know uh it's it's never happened in the west bank that way so they think that we are suffering more yeah. while for us when we think about them okay we say that that only happens from time to time uh like uh each couple of years that happens but we don't see israelis every day but the people in the west bank face and confront pain and the israeli um behaviors like aggressive behaviors toward them every day daily so we sometimes say they are suffering the most mm. but i would say we are both wrong to say that because the comparison itself is a mistake mm. because yeah. it's not yeah yeah i i think it's not um it's not good to to be competing which pain is more intense mm. you know yeah because this kind of normalizes the pain which is from which is actually like basically wrong you yeah. know because it shouldn't be happening yeah. here or in the west bank or in israel itself right yeah that's a that's a actually a wonderful point uh that in lots of ways the suffering is similar because it's based on racism and colonialism uh based yeah. on uh, the, the england and then the united states uh, yes, unfortunately. At least, and uh, so all of it really is very, very similar. Even though, you know, you don't have bulldozers bulldozing your house, but you could have a rocket, you know, land in your house, and the same, pretty much the same thing would be, uh, will have happened. Um, if you had some a couple of minutes to tell Americans uh, something that they don't know about. Uh, about the Palestinian uh, fight uh, for equal rights and the resistance against the occupation. What would you like to tell Americans? Well, um, you know, that's a very important question. It's very significant because we need to be asked that question. Uh, well, we don't have uh, that powerful uh, multimedia, sorry, that powerful media outlets so that we uh, approach the, the world and tell, and tell them the truth of what's happening here. But with all that we have, we are trying our best to reach out to you so mm. that you hear our voices. And this is a great part of it. Mm. Um, yeah. Because we 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 try to uh, help the world raise awareness about us. So because we are hoping in the long run something would change about our faith because it's really miserable. So we want to change the misery into justice mm. through getting our voices heard by you. Yeah. So there are a lot of propaganda that Israel is causing. There is a lot of misunderstanding. There is a lot of lies that they are telling you about us and i don't think that two minutes uh will be enough for me to tell you everything oh, no. but i yeah sadly because the pain is ongoing since 1948 till now see how much injustice has occurred and this is still ongoing anyway um things i would share i would say that um whenever i ask myself or like people around me why Israel is, when I, I remember asking these questions when I was young, because mm. I've, I've, I've actually witnessed the first aggression when I was seven years old. 
And I remember seeing the warplanes in, in the sky and those warplanes belong to Israel because at the time we didn't have any, we still don't. We don't have warplanes so that like you say that there's symmetry or whatever, such mm. like that. And I, and you know, I remember also the pumping and the bombardment, even of the last aggression. Mm. And there are a lot of traumatic events that I can share that I lived. Mm -hmm. uh, I would share one of them now. I remember in the second aggression, I, I don't quite remember how old I was, but I think I was 14, 13, 14. And at the time, uh, we were uh, like uh, escaping into a school. It's like Yonorwa you know, school. Mm -hmm. you know and uh when i was at, at that school we were i was standing before a window and my family members around me in in a in a classroom mm -hmm. you know and out of sudden we heard bombardment then after that bombardment we saw flesh and the blood in the air you know mm. with rockets and, and and that image if i could if i could well draw it and it really, it really terrified me, mm. and um, and I, you know, I like whenever I hear the word aggression, I really remember that that image, and I wonder whether if my fate in the future would be just like the fate of people who were there, because it was very close to me in some moment, mm. and it was really freaking out. Uh, I freaked out when that happened. Um, even though schools shouldn't be targeted, but they really, they target the schools and they target mosques and they target every area in the Gaza Strip. And I always say, and we always say, there is no, literally no shelter for Gazans. Mm. But Israelis, when they, when, when, whenever they want to pump her, to, like to, to, to impose an aggression on us or to harm us in whatever way, and, you know, in that intense way, mm. they just ask their citizens to go for shelters and we don't have shelters no, you don't at have all. No. Yeah, we don't have shelters at all. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, there is uh, there is no escape for civilians, not for people, nor for what we call uh, fidais or people who defend about Palestine, which mm. is really a minority. Mm. And uh, I think it's wrong uh, to to impose a lockdown over a country even though if you want to suppress some kind of violence because as i said that that violence which is actually self-defense not violence is practiced only by the minority and you are punishing almost uh majority just, yeah the majority and actually do you know that half of us actually are children yeah you're very you have a very young population uh, 18 is the median population age is it it's it's very young yes that's true and uh you know in each aggression fred and i said it before in other podcasts like i swear in if in each aggression when we are about to get into aggressions mm -hmm. we we know for sure that the majority of people who would be killed by israelis would be children mm -hmm. and we never failed yes the last question, I've held you on a little bit too long, I think, I'm sorry. And I'm also sorry to ask you questions that make you relive something that is so painful. Uh, it must be part of this work that uh, you have to talk about things that, memories that you 
don't really want to keep bringing up, so I'm sorry to push the questions about your life there, but um, is it surprising in the United States that many young Jewish people uh, join organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, organizations fighting for Palestinian rights? I don't know, did you know that that was the case? Yeah, I know, and that really makes me feel a little bit hopeful about the future because yani, it means that there is a positive change and uh, we need we need to stick into something yeah. that like keeps us pushing through this life, which is the hope on the change that you are making when you are uh, like supporting us and when you and when you are showing solidarity yeah. and when you are helping us sharing our narrative. Right. right, there is something I feel I, I should share, mm -hmm. uh, which is like, uh, I started it, but I didn't finish it. Like the, um, when I used to ask, like when I was young, my parents about what, what's the reason this is happening to us as cousins, they always like, they try to simplify things for me. So they say that um, Israelis, uh, they just uh, think they believe that this is the chosen land that God wants them to live in and they mm -hmm. are the chosen people. So they came to this land on like believing in that. And as a result, they dismissed us out of, uh, mm. of our country. And then they practiced um, a lot of uh, aggression and a lot of uh, injustice uh, daily. And, uh, and when I grew up, I knew that uh, they also claimed that this land was empty. And for two, for these two claims or for the, for these two situations, I, I, I'd ask two questions. First is why as Shahid or why as Palestinians should we uh, just like give up on our land because another people, another group of people believe Hmm. that this land belongs to them like why would we leave our houses yeah. so that someone else who believes that they should live in your house lives in it that's my first question and the other is um if this land was empty how how are they are there many palestinians like millions of palestinians yeah. scattered all around the world millions of palestinians maybe eight or nine million are in the, what we we would call the diaspora uh, in all yeah. countries in the world. Um, well, I, I want to thank you so much for talking. You're welcome. It was such an interesting uh, interview and, and so painful, but sometimes uh, doing this work does give me hope too, that maybe we can get the message out and convince more Americans that we shouldn't be arming Israel. We shouldn't be defending Israel in the UN. Uh, we should be coming out uh, for human rights for Palestinians. And eventually we have to get there. And I think this is part of getting there. So thank you so much for being uh, part of Activist Radio today. Yeah, thank you. And you're welcome. And thank you for hosting me, really. Great. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye.
Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. on WIOF 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. And Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network PRN.FM. Past shows can be heard on ClassWars.org. Please like our Facebook page, read our Class Wars blog for commentary on today's interview. We'll be here next week at the same time to help you become part of the resistance.